When Dorothy gets a job working with Blanche, all hell breaks loose when Blanche's jealous side comes out. But Dorothy has more than Blanche's banquet to worry about. Rose has brought home a stray dog, and she hates dogs. Will Rose ever find the dog's owner? Will Dorothy accept Blanche's apology? Will Sophia pick a Werther's or one of those strawberry things when she has a hard candy? All of this and more in today's episode, Joust Between Friends. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. strawberry candies i love those my grandma had them everywhere now do you like the plain or the gooey middle oh gooey middle yeah i didn't know there was a plain there is a plain which can be very disappointing what a horrible yeah you're like oh i'm just stuck with this strawberry surprise yeah no gooey center i love those especially when they get kind of old oh yeah and you bite them and they don't crack your teeth they just kind of where have all those candies gone where have all those candies gone? Just call Rose Ellen. Ladies and gentlemen, Ellen Burstyn. Because she is bursting into the driveway in her baby blue Oldsmobile Calais, a fairly new car as it was only made from 1985 to 1991 and would have cost her around $10,000. Come in, that So attainable, it'll sweep you away. Come get that special Excitedly, Rose enters the house, puts her groceries in the entryway chair, and invites her guest in. A polite or perhaps vampiric guest who apparently needs to be invited in. It turns out her friend isn't a person or a vampire, but a dog. No, it's not her neighbor Dreyfus. It's a new furry friend played by dog actor Inky, who only appeared in this role. I'm no dog expert, so I can't tell the exact breed, but he looks to be kind of a long-haired terrier mix of some sort. In the credits, it actually says Inky was provided by the American Mongrel Association. A mongrel is just another name for a mutt, and I can find no existence of this organization being around anymore. It's a mystery for the ages. After being welcomed in by Rose in her white dress with a light blue and pink blazer that looks like it was inspired by the Sistine Chapel sky combined with Easter pastels, the dog is then given a voice by Rose, the same voice she used during the garage sale with her stuffed animals when they were bargaining with Dorothy. As she offers her new hairy friend scraps, her less hairy friend Sophia comes in from the kitchen to find her harebrained friend talking to herself. Of course, it only appears that way because the dog is sitting behind the chair, blocking it from Sophia's view. 
In her purple paisley printed frock, carrying half a box of Chips Ahoy on a plate with a glass of milk, Sophia assumes Rose is talking to her imaginary friend, or ghost, as we've previously discussed. Rose corrects her. No, see, there's a dog. Well, Sophia's friend used to talk to the woodpeckers, but a little electroshock therapy fixed her of that habit. Electroconvulsive therapy, or electric shock therapy, got its start in the 1930s. Using electric shock, the treatment triggers seizures as part of treatment for mental health issues. While nowadays, electroconvulsive therapy is still used for patients suffering with depression and bipolar disorder, it is done in a much nicer way than what we've seen in the movies. The treatment is still quite polarizing, but now that it is used with medicines that keep the seizure and electricity from hurting the patient, and it's been shown to improve the patient's condition, it's becoming more acceptable. Whereas when Sophia's friend was receiving it for talking to herself, it was used as a tool for patient compliance. Yikes. We then learn where our new furry friend came from. Rose found him while she was at the grocery store, and she decided to take him home until she could find the owner. Knowing how poor her decision-making can be and how fervently she loves animals, it's very possible the dog was actually leashed and tied up outside the store while the owner grabbed a few things. I think a lot of people, especially in the city, have done that. And she straight up took it, thinking it was lost. Per usual, Sophia isn't all that interested in the story. She's just worried about the owner of the stolen or lost dog being found before the dog-hating Dorothy comes home. A side of her we've yet to see and can hardly believe is real. Coco, you were very distraught when you heard that. I think you had like an actual reaction when you heard Dorothy hates dogs. It's hard not to judge a person mm. that is not fond of dogs. I just don't understand that. Unless they've had a very ne you know negative experience, and right. I understand it, but just not yeah, to be Yeah, a generalization person. to be like, mm, no. I just don't understand that. It it tells you something about the person. It makes me feel sad for her, too. Yeah. Because dog love is the best love. Yeah. Maybe by the end, she'll find it. Hmm. Just then, a black with a colorful pattern jumpsuit with a yellow blazer wearing Blanche enters to find the dog, and she's delighted. With a blissful voice, she greets the pup, gently petting his head, certain by their immediate bond that he is a him. Her tone remains joyous even when Rose asks if she minds if the dog stays there until the owner is found. Once again, I am left jealous of Blanche's bluntness. When Rose asks if she minds, Blanche responds with, Mind? Of course I mind! Which I feel is rarely an opportunity that presents itself. Of course I don't mind. I've never minded anything to be minded. But there have been times I wish I could have been more firm and said that I minded when I minded. Blanche's minding comes from the fact that the dog is a messy animal that is supposed to be roaming the great outdoors whilst licking itself in privacy, not a friend to have on the couch with you. Coming to a compromise, Blanche agrees to let the animal stay in the house, but only if it stays in Rose's room. And one more caveat. Out of fairness, you'll have to get approval from Dorothy, and if there are any messes indoors, it will be Rose's nose buried in it. When it comes to rubbing your dog's nose in a potty training accident, it's no good. Without knowledge of how long dogs can retain information, it's very possible they don't have the ability to connect the action of urinating to the action of you pushing their face in it. Additionally, they could get sick, or you could, if you literally rub their face in it. Also, it's just mean. It was an accident. They mean well, they just mess up from time to time. Don't you, Rosie? 
As Rose makes her way to her room, giving a farewell from the dog to each of the ladies, Sophia can't understand the double standard. So because she's young and acting that way, it's fine. But if I did it, you would throw me in the home where I would have to do crafts with popsicle sticks? With a defeated burst, Dorothy has arrived home and she has had it. She's had it. She's been out and about applying for all the part-time work she could find. See, children, gather around now. Before the internet, so when I was a teen looking for a job, you had to go to the place you wanted to work to see if they had any openings. If they did, they'd give you an application. You'd fill that out, get your resume printed, and return it to the company, then wait to hear if you were up for an interview. Very expeditious. Coco, did you have, uh, like, either a crummy first job or any any early job fun stories? Yes. <laughs> My very first job was um, cleaning a hair salon after hours, and I was in high school, I think I was a senior, and it was like a night job, and I I wasn't good at it. I didn't like doing it. I was scared when I was there, (laughs) because it was nighttime, and it was just huge plate glass glass windows. windows. And so I just tried to get out of there. My jaw is on the floor. I had no idea that was your first job. I hated it. And that would explain why you have such an aversion to hair. That's why it all fell out of my head and I bawled. <laughs> no, like you you, you kind of have a, like a, a visceral reaction or like an intense reaction when there's like a stray hair or like the dog gets stuck chewing on a hair or like drained stuff. Well, I wonder if it comes from that. That's a very interesting observation that I'll have to examine late at night. <laughs> and I bet that's true. I do. I don't like. How old were you? Uh, 17, 18. Okay. Yeah. That's so. great. Did it pay well? Cleaning jobs pay, it pay well? It paid pretty well, but it was just, it was just not for me. <laughs> My almost first job was at the candy store at the Troutdale Outlets. And I went down and filled out the application and then they called to do an interview and I was so scared to deal with the money because I'm so bad with math that I was like, um, actually, no, thank you. Bye. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Who knows what would have happened at that candy you know, store? Face my challenges. Dorothy is desperate for work, but not so desperate that she'd stoop to selling cocaine. We're going to walk. We're going to eat that salsa for breakfast. <laughs> There's a reason Scarface, the film about a crazed cocaine drug lord, was filmed in Miami in the 80s. It was literally a war zone between the U.S. government and drug traffickers. It's estimated over $2 billion of cocaine was sold in Miami during the drug wars of the 80s. Somebody call Miami Vice! So why is Dorothy even looking for work? Well, thanks to her and Blanche's exposition-filled conversation, we now know. Dade County is experimenting with year-round school. As part of the plan, perhaps for financial reasons, all teachers are forced to take 10 weeks off, or what would be equal to a summer. Her 10 weeks is now. Hard to hire someone when you know they're only going to be there for two and a half months. I don't know if year-round schools usually do this. I know some companies like Nike force their contractors to take chunks of time off, so who knows? Gmail us. Sophia, right as usual, tells Dorothy she wouldn't be in such dire straits if she had listened to her and taken the permanent position she recommended, becoming a nun. And what would be so wrong with that? 
She would have steady work. She would have a provided uniform. And unlike her last husband, her new husband, God, would be home every night. I had a great aunt who, at 6'4", was a good little Irish Catholic girl and became a nun. I even have a photo of her in her habit. Then she met a man and they fell in love. In love with each other and in love with making music. Imagine Miles, but even meeker and much smaller, paired with a woman bigger than Dorothy. Now put a guitar in the guy's lap and a shrieking holy lady voice and you have my aunt and uncle. It was like Peter, Paul, and Mary, but really, really bad. Besides her being an odd duck and having no social skills, my mom always felt weird about my aunt leaving the church for her man because it meant she had to divorce God. However, that's not quite the case. According to uscatholic.org, saying a sister is married to God varies from congregation to congregation. It isn't universal within Catholicism. Did you ever encounter that at school? Encounter what? Like a nun being talking about being married to God or anything? Sister Barbara, older than the hills. <laughs> Old as God. And mean as a snake. Mm-hmm. Um, one time in the library, my friend Johnny dared me to fart <gasps> while sitting on a <gasps> library chair. And I did. And it was the loudest <gasps> fart you've ever heard. <laughs> everyone, everyone knew it was me. Did she yell at you? No. No, we just left. <laughs> you are full of shocking information today. Big time library toots. Li library toots. <laughs> <laughs> oh, never mind. <laughs> it was a big old library toot. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Does that feel better? Yes. That's what needs to happen. But reminders of past failures aren't helpful at this time, Sophia. Defeated, the coral pant and wrap accompanied with a white shirt wearing Dorothy slumps into the couch even more. But Blanche has one more offer of hope, for Dorothy to work with her at the museum, which she did offer previously. For someone only looking to work for a few weeks, Dorothy's lack of museum knowledge shouldn't matter all that much. It's not like in such a short period of time she would be curating an exhibit. Although she feels that she doesn't know enough, Dorothy does know to not eat the veal at the museum cafeteria. When it comes to serving veal in a cafeteria, there isn't a definitive answer as to why Dorothy says that. I even found someone asking the question on usingenglish.com. The best I can guess is that she knows so little about an actual museum, the only thing she's qualified to discuss is the food being served and a delicate meal such as veal shouldn't be mass-produced for public consumption and be expected to be good. Unfazed by Dorothy's lack of belief in herself, Blanche settles it. She's making an appointment for Dorothy to interview with the boss at the museum tomorrow. They'll get to work together, Dorothy has a job, and we'll make money. It's a win-win-win. As Blanche walks away victorious, the silence of the room allows the dog bark coming from Rose's room to echo down the hall and into Dorothy's ears. Before Dorothy can get too upset, Blanche tells her it's a dog that Rose brought home from the store. Implying she must have done so for nourishment, Dorothy jokes, what, they were out of stew meat? Implying the dog wasn't found at the market, rather it was purchased. 
Dorothy is touching on a subject close to my heart and Coco's. We actually are the proud parents of Boku, a South Korean jindo who made his way all the way from a meat farm of 300 dogs in Korea to Portland after being rescued by the amazing team at SaveKoreanDogs.org, especially Nami Kim, who bravely seeks out the dog farms, buys the farmers out, and gets the farm shut down. And if the farmers are interested, she even helps them change their trade to something more green and sustainable. You can visit SaveKoreanDogs.org to see adoptable dogs and to donate to their great work. Also, being upset about a culture eating dogs and not cows is called speciesism, so don't judge what some people eat just because it seems awful to you. Heck, it's all awful to some of us. Coco, you've actually been making a lot of progress with Boku lately. Yeah, he's sort of institutionalized in a way, I think. and he's That's a, a great way of putting that. He has a hard time being social and playing and knowing how to be a dog. So I'm just really nice to him, and I talk to him in a really nice tone of voice, and I make sure I, I force pets on him when he leaves <laughs> the house to go outside. He likes them. Yeah. I don't know. I, try, I throw toys at him to try to make him play and stuff. You know, not at him. <laughs> but I try to initiate play with him and stuff, and he seems to be responding. He's following, like, commands. I have a he command really for him to come has. inside, and he's following that. That's been really cool. Well, and with Rosie, our other little log coming into the picture, she's such a good playmate with him. That he's actually, I've had him about four years now, and he's actually starting to play with toys and being like, oh, it's okay. Because he was, he was in, they're basically, uh, dogs are kept in like rabbit cages, but he was picked on so much, and he's got a little janky mouth. Uh, he was actually outside, so he got to be like on the ground, but he was alone, so that's why he's our, he's our special little boy. He is, he's really special, and he's, yeah, he's, he's just a loner and a rebel. Yeah. And he likes to sit outside and look off into the distance <laughs> most of the time. He does. Yeah, it's amazing the moments that, like, especially in the summer, the sun is shining and he's just laid out and living his best life. And it makes me so happy that he didn't end up stew meat. And like I said, you can visit SaveKoreanDogs.org and they have puppies. So if you're, you know, concerned about a, a trauma, a traumatized dog, um, they have they have puppies, they have dogs that... Um, aren't aren't so extreme so definitely check them out if you're looking to get yourself a dog when rose comes out carrying her new friend her own puppy dog eyes pleading for dorothy to be patient and understanding she knows it's an uphill battle especially when dorothy stands showing us that she isn't wearing a plain white shirt. In fact, the collar we see is just a fake collar on her coral wrap. She actually has some sort of floral vest on and a stiff collar on that shirt. It's all too much. Just like Rose's story of the dog following her home. A bit hard to believe since she drove and dogs can't take taxis. Okay, so maybe it didn't follow her, but she couldn't just leave it behind. Even though she searched for three hours, she hadn't found its owner, and she couldn't leave it there. With a beg in her doggy voice, Dorothy gives in and gives permission for the dog to stay just one night. In disbelief at the dog-related BS Dorothy has to put up with, she turns to her mother for validation. Except she has to make a joke, of course, implying the unbelievable part was that the dog was talking. Clearly it was Rose, her lips were moving. While Dorothy tries to put a hand in one of her knee-length pockets, we're treated to a transition from the living room to the museum campus. In the classic interview tradition, Blanche's boss is interviewing his employee's friend with the employee present, but sitting with the friend. I mean, that's one way to be a reference. 
Being interviewed, Dorothy shares that she not only taught some art classes as a substitute, she also attended some when she went to school. But Mr. Allen, her potential future boss, hasn't heard a word of it. He's lost in his own thoughts. You know, it's not every day you catch your best friend in bed with your wife, and that's exactly what happened to Mr. Allen, except he was the best friend, and the wife he was in bed with wasn't his. The way Mr. Allen is so distraught and unfocused because he was caught cheating reminds me of a story. Picture it. Nashville, 2002. I had just finished my internship, the one where I wrote with Big and Rich, and was supposed to meet with their manager slash the record label guys because I had told them my number one dream slash goal slash expectation from all of the work we had done. I wanted to go on the road. I would be one of the guy's assistant, an assistant to assistants, a roadie, a bus cleaner. I didn't care. I was a 19-year-old who wanted nothing more than to travel the world, listen to music, and have some adventures. So the last day came. It was kind of like the end of a season on Real World. Everyone was lugging their baggage around, catching flights throughout the day. Mine was one of the later ones, so I had a meeting scheduled with Mark, the important guy who was going to make all my dreams come true. So when the car he was supposed to send didn't arrive to pick me up to take me to the meeting, I started to grow concerned. I called Mark, and he didn't answer. I called again, and he finally picked up, and he sounded distraught. I greeted him. He gave a classic show business thing of, uh, who, what, uh... When I explained who I was and that we had a meeting scheduled, he was as much of a clown as Mr. Allen. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, Alicia. I, I, I can't today. My wife caught me cheating, and I have to deal with all of that. I tried explaining to him I was leaving for the other side of the country, but he couldn't hang up fast enough. When I upsettingly relayed the information to my mentor, Larry, who you've met, Coco, he said in his classically dry fashion, well, that's what happens when you can't keep it zipped up, which made me even more upset because it was like, how dare this guy be upset about it if it isn't even the first time? Anyway, because of that affair, my life took a totally different path than I expected it to. But it got me to you, and it got me to this show, so who cares about the could-have-beens? I'd grab his lapels if we were in a room with him. I'm, it really, when I rewatched this episode, you know, with this show in mind, and the way he was just kind of like, oh, whatever, I was like, oh my god, that's exactly, like, this self-serving pity party (laughs) when you're the one that brought it upon yourself. Yeah, that's like one of those feelings when you are you know you're not starring in your movie right then. Or maybe yeah. you are, <laughs> but that the person who's having that thing is really... Hijacking. Hijacking everything they're connected to. Yeah. yeah. Nothing matters but the fact that I cheated on my partner and have yeah. to deal with it. I mean, it literally cool. completely changed my life. Yeah. As it would have the other way. But it was like, you know, when do you get those opportunities? Never. Yeah. And it was like... Wait, what? Like that was, and you know maybe that was uh, at the time didn't seem like a good, a good sign. But like that that man's behavior is a red flag. Oh yeah. And so you just would have been in that world, mm-hmm. and who knows how? Oh, bad that would have been it, or good. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, it it all worked out for the best. Yeah, yeah. You were nineteen. <laughs> That's ooh, scary. <laughs> The term being caught red-handed may sound like it has racist origins, especially since most American colloquialisms are, but it isn't. And it isn't even American. 
Thanks to Yahoo's digging, I found that the first use of red-handed actually came from the Scottish Acts of Parliament of James I all the way back in 1432. I'd tell you what the passage was, but I'll leave it to my Scottish friend Sam to read it for us. Take it away, Sam. The Scottish Acts of Parliament of James I in 1432 That the offender be taken right hand may be pursued and put to the knowledge of any size before the baron or landslord of the land or ground whether the offender be his tenant unto whom the rang is done or not and others not taken right hand. Getting back to the interview, Blanche has fought to get her boss's attention back on the task at hand, pointing out that Dorothy has great taste in art and always compliments Blanche on her outfits. After Mr. Allen acknowledges how highly Blanche thinks of Dorothy's abilities, Dorothy jokes, and after this, she's going to be sending my resume to the Vatican. Maybe because Dorothy is being put on a pedestal of perfection, or she has such good taste in art, she could handle the details of the Vatican artworks. Of course, Dorothy didn't mean it. She's just feeling nervous in an interview with a man who is too consumed with his own issues. Once again, Blanche has to get Mr. Allen back on track. When asking if Dorothy has the job, he very flippantly is like, yeah, whatever. A great start to a working relationship. Playing Mr. Allen is Reed Shelton from right in our own backyard of Salem, Oregon. He had a handful of acting roles on the big screen, but he was most known for his roles on stage, particularly as the original Daddy Warbucks in Annie on Broadway. His screen roles were in shows like Married with Children, St. Elsewhere, Jake and the Fat Man, Knott's Landing, Family Ties, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Jeffersons, One Day at a Time, Webster, Three's Company, Cheers, Knight Rider, Remington Steel, and of course, La La. On Broadway, besides Annie, he was known for Wish You Were Here, Carousel, and My Fair Lady. He passed away in Portland in 1997, his partner of 24 years, Donovan, at his side. Back at the house, a head-to-toe Pepto-Pink sweatsuit-wearing Rose has come into the kitchen with a dog leash in hand, startled to find Dorothy, who is also in the kitchen. And she ain't pleased to see that even though they agreed that the dog was only staying overnight, it has now been in the house for over a week. Yeah, she was going to take him to the pound the day before, but he wasn't up for it. Understandable that Rose wouldn't want to take her friend to the shelter. While nowadays taking a lost dog to the shelter is the best thing you can do so they can be checked for a microchip and posted online as to be found, those technologies weren't around in the 80s. And since no-kill shelters didn't start to become commonplace until the mid to late 90s, taking the dog in might have led to them holding him for just three days before putting him down. Rose's excuse of the dog being ill sounds made up, but Sophia's pretty sure it's legit. He was sick because he was hungover. He was hungover because she gave him sherry the night before. Twice a week, Sophia rinses out her underwear, which I don't even want to get into. Why are you rinsing them? Where? Hopefully not the kitchen sink. Is it so upsetting you have to drink to get through it? Anyway, she treats herself to some sherry, and with the dog helping, she shared with him, mostly because he looks just like her brother. I've actually always heard that dogs love beer and you're fine to give it to them from time to time. Well, according to PetMD and every other resource I read, that just is not the case. In fact, dogs and cats both should stay away from all alcohol and it comes down to size. Sure, we can handle a glass of booze, but we are much bigger than our pets. Your X number of pounded body can handle a higher dose than your pup. It doesn't matter if it's beer or sherry. What matters is the alcohol content. 
If your pooch gets a few sips of a light beer, they'll probably be okay. But if they lap up a bottle of Everclear and start showing the same signs of alcohol poisoning as humans do, it's time to go to the emergency vet. Something to ease your now-worried minds, for the most part, dogs aren't really fond of the taste of alcohol, so they don't seek it out and try to get drunkard. Giacomo Puccini was an Italian composer from the late 1800s and early 1900s. He was and remains one of the most beloved Italian opera composers of all time. He was best known for La Boheme, Tosca, Madame Butterfly, and Turnadot. Not helping to ease the frustrations of the rust-colored sweater with stiff white collar sporting Dorothy is the fact that the dog is now drooling upon her foot. Just like arguing with a kid, Rose begs for just one more day with him. She knows that her efforts of putting up flyers everywhere will lead to finding the owner. Pushover Dorothy agrees. Fine. One more day. In all of her time with the pup, Rose has trained him to leap into her arms, and it's adorable. Her dog voice telling Dorothy to lighten up, which isn't as cute. As Rose leaves the kitchen, she passes Blanche, who is surprised to see the dog is still there. Wow, Rose must really keep the dog quiet and hidden well since no one seems to have noticed it was there for a week. Almost like it'd be okay if she just kept the dog. After filling Blanche in on the escapades of Inky and Sophia, Dorothy goes back to packing her lunch, which is surprising to Blanche as it's so early in the morning. That's because Dorothy told Mr. Allen she would be doing some extra work for him, so she's getting an early start. Excited her friend has found a job she's succeeding at, Blanche is delighted that after only a few days, Dorothy is nearly as well-versed in the museum's goings-on as she is. Supportive of her daughter as always, Sophia isn't impressed by her fast learning. What is there to learn? What's there to know? Get a nail and a hammer, hang up a picture. That's work at a museum. When the phone rings and Sophia answers, it's Mr. Allen. Surprised, Blanche gets up from the table to go get it, delighted that he's calling her at home, which he's never done. Well, he technically still hasn't, as he's calling for his favorite new employee, Dorothy. Will someone let Blanche know that having your boss call you at home isn't a treat? It's actually a pretty severe crossing of personal boundaries and cutting into personal time. In a silk robe that kind of resembles her other colorful one but muted and a teal nighty, Blanche swallows her pride and has a seat once she's informed that she's not the one wanted on the phone. Taking the call and offering nothing more than, thank you, thank you, thank you, Blanche is left wondering what was so lovely about what Mr. Allen had to say. Turns out he was calling Dorothy to thank her for all of her hard work on the recent Hotchkiss project. Landscape artist Thomas Hotchkiss was an American painter in the early 1800s. He was born in America but moved to Italy where he found his talent translated well and he became known for his depictions of the Italian countryside. Feeling the same emotion towards Mr. Allen calling Dorothy as she does towards her sister, Blanche can't help but say the praise for her work is lovely. Just lovely. Going from number one supporter and cheerleader to taking Sophia's side, Blanche clarifies that, sure, that's great that she's done all that work, but it's not like there was a lot to be done anyway. Thanks everyone for your support, screams me as Dorothy. Too distracted or perhaps numb to the verbal abuse, Dorothy spots her ma holding the sherry. When it's ripped from her hands, Sophia explains it wasn't for her to drink. She was merely hiding it from the dog who has now developed a drinking problem after one wild night with Sophia and her underwear. 
proving her wrong as the dog who comes into the kitchen and takes a seat at the table, right when Dorothy set the bottle down upon it. It's a classic sitcom gag. After reminding the dog not to drink and drive, we transition to the office at the museum, where a man with the tightest pants has come in to pick up the mail or something. Who cares? Just look at those buns. As he leaves, he passes Blanche and Sophia, who are coming into the office. Sophia isn't there to also get a job, but to bring Dorothy her forgotten lunch. It was no burden. In fact, it gave her a nice excuse to put her teeth in. Relatable. Not putting them in, but brushing them. Or putting on a bra. Or makeup. Or pants. The last two years, my remembering to do those things has definitely wavered. Since Sophia has gotten all gussied up, Blanche offers her a personal tour of the museum. Not one to appreciate traditional art, Sophia passes. Besides, if she wanted to just look at some pictures, she'd stop by the Photomat. Photomat was a chain of photo development stores. What made Photomat special was they had little kiosks and parking lots, so you could pull up with your film, drop it off, and pick it up in a day or two. Less if you were some sort of rich person and you did it in an hour. You see, children, back in the day, before camera phones, even before digital cameras, we had plain old cameras with film. You never knew if you were going to actually get a photo of what you wanted, or if, when getting them developed, you were paying for actual blurred trash. It was a thrilling time of uncertainty and an exercise in patience. Sophia has to scoot anyway. She's got Rose and the dog waiting in the car, which she's excited to get back to as the dog has taught her how to hang her head out the window when they're going 50, which she enjoyed quite a lot. My parents used to joke about that when they had a motorcycle, and I've definitely seen Harley bumper stickers saying something to the effect of, now I know why my dog sticks his head out the window. Greeting his employee's mother is Mr. Allen. With a polite, perhaps a bit condescending welcome, Sophia immediately isn't into Mr. Allen's vibe. Then she gives us the oh boy of, is he gay? Whispered over her shoulder to Blanche. Sophia... Just because someone has a light blue suit or calls their workplace their humble home doesn't mean they're gay. It's also not nice to ask right when meeting someone. Did he say, hello, Mrs. Petrillo, are you all about that D or what? Although I do love her attempted coolness of brushing her hair to the side while blocking her mouth to ask. After Dorothy grabs her tan coat with a somehow even bigger white collar than the one she already had on her shirt, she makes her way to the door, planning on walking her mother to the car. Bummed, Mr. Allen wishes he could show Sophia his prized possessions, a pair of Gogans, which, in Sophia's defense, does sound a little perverted, probably because it's so close to gonads, the sexual glands of ovaries and testicles. That's right, those with ovaries have gonads. Mr. Allen's pair of Gogans isn't as scandalous as Sophia makes it out to be, and we'll need to eventually circle back to that comment. I mean, didn't Sal get out of the shower in front of you or, like, ever fool around with the lights on? He never had a medical or perhaps drinking-induced moment you needed to help clean him up? Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. Gauguin's is referring to Paul Gauguin, the painter from the late 1800s. He was known for his use of color and for painting the people and surroundings of his home later in life, French Polynesia. Now that the Petrillo women have left with Dorothy violently shoving her mom into the elevator, Mr. Allen can talk to Blanche. He wanted to speak to her about the upcoming banquet. Well, Blanche is the party-planning princess, so she is happy to handle all of it. But that's just what Mr. Allen wanted to tell her. She won't be planning it. Dorothy will. Mr. Allen is pleased with his plan. 
Blanche can focus on the upcoming exhibition while Dorothy does all of the banquet planning. Except that Blanche had already been planning on planning, so this news isn't exactly sitting well with her. That's why when Dorothy's phone rings and Blanche in her white and earth tone pattern blazer and teal dress answers, she shares that Dorothy isn't available. She was arrested on a morals charge earlier in the day. Morals charge might sound harmlessly vague enough, but it's actually quite serious. It can be in regards to sex work or soliciting a minor for anything illegal like sex, drugs, alcohol, and so on. Yikes, Blanche. You're willing to do all of this reputation damage just because your boss wanted to give Dorothy a job? She didn't do anything except work hard. And she's only there for nine more weeks. Damn. Hey, man. That's all in the game. (laughs) The museum game. That's right. There's there's very few positions. and uh, A notoriously cutthroat... If, yeah, <laughs> line of work. If the movie The Relic is any indication, <laughs> yes. 33% homo sapien. Party. Huh? What are you talking about? Gradual extinction of the human race. It's nighttime and Dorothy is peacefully sleeping in her bed when a big hairy male comes in and curls up with her. No, it's not Stan and it's not Sophia. It's the dog. In her slumber, she can't tell the difference. So Dorothy tells the dog, who she thinks is Sophia, to leave her alone and get the dye gel from the cupboard. Dye gel isn't anything too exciting. It's your everyday antacid. A fancy sounding Tums with a catchy little fart via horn filled jingle. Send your stomach some digel. I like pizza, but it doesn't like me. Send your stomach some digel. When Sophia doesn't budge, Dorothy rolls over, wrapping her arm around the dog. Realizing she's been swindled, Dorothy jumps up, demanding the dog get down and leave immediately. But he won't move. Defeated, Dorothy sits with him, begging him to not try the same tricks as Stan. Puppy dog eyes, wet nose, floppy ears. Dorothy points out that it didn't end well the last time, and this time won't be any different. But the only thing moving on the pupper are his confused eyebrows. Finally, we get to the root of Dorothy's hate. She doesn't suffer from kynophobia, the fear of dogs. She suffers from thanatophobia, the fear of death. When Dorothy's daughter was young, she had a pet schnauzer, Wawa. Give her a break, the kid was young when she named him. Wawa became Dorothy's best friend, never leaving her side. Then, as pets do, Wawa passed away. The loss was devastating to Dorothy, who never recovered from or perhaps even dealt with her emotions surrounding his death. The fear of that pain and loss is what keeps her from pursuing a companionship with a dog. Which is fair, but to once again quote Janis Joplin, Say you want a cat for a year, but you only get it for a day. You can spend that day crying about the other 364 days, or you can enjoy and celebrate the one day you do get. And you call that love. Man. Obviously, in this case, we'd be replacing cat with dog. Standing up from the bed in her white, complemented with a purple collar, Saturday night fever, business casual pajamas, Dorothy realizes she's been opening up, perhaps for the first time, about her feelings about Wawa. And she's doing it to a dog that licks his butt and drinks from the toilet. Feeling duped and complimenting her jammies with a matching so much it's nearly invisible robe, an angry Dorothy makes her way to the kitchen to confront Rose, a Rose who has inadvertently brought up all of these emotions for Dorothy. 
Hey guys, could you put your anger where it deserves to be instead of lying on the phone about a serious crime or yelling at your friend because your childhood dog made you sad? Once again, Rose is able to finagle getting a few more days with the dog. Once agreeing to a vague plan, Dorothy asks for a doggy bone. But after her rude behavior, Rose doesn't feel Dorothy deserves one. So she has to yell at Rose that it's for the dog who is on her bed. After Rose leaves to deal with the mutt, Blanche enters the kitchen, dramatically looking at Dorothy in disgust. Dorothy's surprised to see Blanche can't sleep either. But her reason isn't because of a dog in her bed. It's because of the knife in her back. Implying her friend has been deceptive and is taking away attention at work, Blanche dramatically refers to the phrase that is famously associated with Julius Caesar, who was stabbed, literally in the back, by his closest friends and confidants. Basically, she's saying Dorothy is her Brutus and simply cannot be trusted. Confused, Dorothy asks for clarification, so Blanche elaborates. She's been pushed into a corner and has no choice but to get her fight on. That's because she's sober. If she were drunk, she wouldn't fight once she was pinned in the corner. She'd slink down the wall until on the ground where she'd make love with the pinner. This has not helped to clear things up for Dorothy. Laying it all out, Blanche stamps her foot and tantrums that Dorothy straight up stole the gig of hosting the banquet. She argues back, how can I steal something that was given to me by our boss? For Blanche, that's not the point. It's that Dorothy must have done something to convince Mr. Allen to give her the job, therefore stealing it. It's especially upsetting since it appears to Blanche that Dorothy hadn't put in the five years of working there and didn't do the hard work she had done to earn it, like wearing low-cut shirts and seductively picking things off the ground. I think I dropped something on the floor that I need to pick up. So you bend and snap. See? Come on, you try Continuing with the sexual harassment at work being perceived as a sign of a job well done or something to be tolerated for even a millisecond, it's been Blanche who has always been chosen as the victim of groping at the Christmas parties. Oh, boy. Responding to all of Blanche's hard work and offerings, or should we say unwillingness to press charges, Dorothy is shocked that Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to sit on the Supreme Court starting in 1981, was nominated and confirmed for the court over Blanche. Pinned in a corner, crawling on the ground, bending and snapping, those things Blanche will do. But sitting down and taking it? No, not on her watch. She knows art. She knows the museum, and she knows her friend is going to screw it up. Okay, can we take a moment to validate that? Not the sexual harassment, but the frustration Blanche must be feeling regarding her friend overshadowing her in her place of work, home of her second best performances. However, Dorothy isn't interested in validating or hearing it. She's just an employee. A boss gave her a job to do, and she's going to do it. And she can't be bothered to work around Blanche's childish emotions. Well... This doesn't sit well with Blanche. I'm childish, but Dorothy makes a good point. I'm a backstabber? Before they get into saying things they might really regret, Rose and the dog enter the kitchen. Sounding desperate, Rose pleads for the pup to stay just a little bit longer. Not knowing to read the room before sharing information that might be upsetting, Rose is met with Dorothy's frustration and gets a get rid of him and a who cares from Blanche when she's informed the dog may be sick. Unfazed, the dog speaks through Rose, saying, Don't worry, Rose. I used to live with some bitches myself. Spicy. It's okay, though. That's strictly dog-related. Getting back to the museum, Dorothy's hard at work at her desk when Mr. Allen comes out of his office to check in with her about the banquet. 
That's when we learn the truth. Mr. Allen is throwing a surprise banquet for Blanche as a thank you for her work ethic. He can't wait for her to see the party, and neither can Dorothy. Then she won't have to put on an act when Blanche gets mad at her. But really, what an angel. I don't know that I could be in Dorothy's position and not just yell, it's a party for you, dumbass, when they started to get nasty like that. I would happily ruin a surprise party for a jerk friend. Yes. No problem. Yeah. I'll call, Gmail us, and I will call your (laughs) friends, your jerk-ass friends, to ruin something for them. Yeah, you're acting like that real quick. I'm going, oh, well, here it is. That's the speech. And here's the invitations. It's your party. Don't you feel like a fool? It's going to be such a formal affair. Mr. Allen is writing up a speech to give at the party. Just as Dorothy is saying she'd be happy to read a draft of it once it's done, Blanche walks in and promptly mocks Dorothy's tone. While her emotions have her feeling green, she's in head-to-toe pink slash dark pink for her blazer and pants, light pink for her collared shirt. As Blanche struts to her desk, she asks Dorothy, isn't it a bit early in the day for bootlicking? To say someone is a bootlicker is not much different than, say, a brown noser. It's someone willing to lick the boots of someone, especially if they are in a powerful position. Since I don't want to get too political on this show, I'll say that this phrase may or may not have been chanted at protests regarding Black Lives Matter last summer. Besides my yelling it in the street, to lick thy shoe was a line used in Shakespeare's The Tempest. In her thick paperclip-inspired earrings, light denim shirt with a floral, well, bib, Dorothy makes her way across the room to give Blanche her mail. Mail that Blanche is sure Dorothy has already opened and read, seeing as she can't be trusted and all. All of her accusations have left Dorothy annoyed and frustrated, so she gets back to work while Blanche twaddles on about being meaningless, while also joking that she doesn't want to do anything to separate Dorothy's lips from Mr. Allen's butt, a.k.a. she's a brown noser. Well, that does it for Dorothy. They've been best friends. That was the fun of getting to work together. Now, based on nothing, Blanche's perception has changed of Dorothy. Like she's now the kind of person that would want to hurt her feelings or lie about things. How could you be friends if that's the type of person you think I am? Begging, Dorothy asks Blanche to remember who she's talking to, to realize that nothing has changed, to remember why they were friends in the first place. The stern talking to knocks some sense into Blanche, a testament to Rue's acting. Blanche's entire face and demeanor totally change, somehow becoming softer and lighter. She finally realizes she isn't dealing with some rival in high school. She's talking to her supposed best friend, and she needs to get her act together. She finally apologizes and recognizes what she did wrong, understanding that her friend that has never hidden anything from her would never hide anything from her. As Dorothy takes a moment to process Blanche's confession, impatience weighs on Blanche and she stands, begging to be forgiven. Now a showing of B's skills as she starts to tear up, not only at the sadness her friend is experiencing and expressing, but at the pain that has been caused by that same friend. Trying to make the point of how distraught the whole thing has made her, Blanche has to ask Dorothy to take her at her word, since she obviously still looks devastating. Remembering how much fun they have in their relationship, Dorothy forgives her and they have a moment. That is shortly ruined as Mr. Allen comes into the office, only to stop talking, drop his first draft of the speech on Dorothy's desk, and walk away quickly when he sees Blanche is there. Showing she still doesn't fully believe her friend while putting Dorothy in a bad spot, Blanche asks what the paper was she was just given by Bossman. Dorothy dismisses it, playing dumb. 
Oh, that? That was nothing. Well, if it's nothing, couldn't Blanche see it? Our queen of deflection, Dorothy, suggests they go get pizza. But seeing as it's nine in the morning, Blanche passes. With no answer to Blanche's many whys, Dorothy has to tell Blanche she can't see it. Out of excuses, Dorothy says, flat out, it's none of your business. Except there has never been anything in that museum that wasn't Blanche's business, so that's simply not possible. The Southern Belle rears her ugly head again, resorting to the same name-calling and foot-stomping as before, only louder. Joking that all the name-calling is flattering, Dorothy holds her ground. So that does it for Blanche. She's going to quit the job that Dorothy appears to want so badly. She's so mad she can't even wait for the elevator, so she stomps to the stairs. Back at the house, Beetlejuice-dressed Dorothy and white shirt, tan pants, yellow cardigan Sophia are playing gin. As excited as Sophia is to be playing and winning, she's disappointed Dorothy is so upset about Blanche. She doesn't even have the energy to get mad about losing, taking all the fun out of it for Sophia. So, Sophia offers a solution. And it's always the best solution. Tell the truth. It might ruin the party, but you'll save the friendship by telling Blanche the banquet is for her. As true as that may be, Dorothy can't break the promise she made to keep it a secret. Just then, Norman, I mean Blanche, comes storming into the house. Trying to make amends, Dorothy greets her, only to be met with the Blanchiest Blanchism of all time. Eat dirt and die, trash. While throwing her keys into her purse and marching to her room. As any mother would, Sophia snaps. Dorothy may have had to keep things secret, but Sophia doesn't, and she will not tolerate the abuse towards her daughter any longer. With a raise of her voice and pointing of the finger, she breaks the news. It's your stupid banquet. As disappointed as Dorothy is to have the secret out, you definitely hear a sense of relief. She didn't break the promise, and Blanche will know the truth. Blanche's jaw drops as she asks Dorothy to confirm the news. When she does, a proud Sophia with her hands on her hips celebrates her victory of making Blanche feel like the aforementioned trash by getting candy. With the wind knocked out of her, Blanche sits on the couch in disbelief. Finally, the real source of her feelings comes out. In less than a week, Dorothy stepped into her role, something she thought was difficult, and made it look like it was barely work. Dorothy is flattered she thinks of her as any idiot who could get the job done. Finally, Blanche gets something right. There aren't enough words in the world to give Dorothy the right kind of apology her behavior deserves. She was cruel and, well, awful. Since words won't cut it and her love language is gifts, she feels she must give her most beautiful item to the most beautiful person, and her most beautiful item, or items, are her emerald earrings. Emerald earrings, even vintage ones nowadays, are not the most expensive thing in the world. You can get a lovely pair for anywhere between 20 bucks and 1000 But you know, her earrings are just too beautiful, so she can't just give them to her. But Dorothy could buy some of her own with the $75 check Blanche wants to write to her for having been such a big jerk. A few years ago, I learned about the five love languages. Take it for what you will, but I find it to be a helpful tool with everyone from my partner to coworkers, friends, and parents. Understanding how someone accepts and shows love is so helpful in communication. It's pretty clear here that out of the love languages of quality time, acts of service, gifts, physical touch, and affirmation, that blanches as gifts. I speak in gifts and acts of service, I receive in physical touch and quality time, and I vomit at affirmation. This is tricky because gifts is not Dorothy's love language. This leaves Blanche in a pickle. If she can't pay Dorothy off, how will she ever make amends? 
Coming to a compromise, Dorothy agrees to take the check, but to save it to show her if she ever gets to acting so stupid again. The ladies hug and Dorothy goes back to the banquet. Can Blanche act surprised? Can she pretend to be a virgin many times? The answer to both of those is yes. In the door comes Rose in what looks to be a mint green sweatshirt dress. It looks real comfy with a preppy style light pink sweater around her shoulders. She's got great news. The owners of the dog have been found. They're once again a dogless house. Faking excitement, Dorothy nearly breaks into tears with dog love. She fell for the pup, and just like Wawa, her friend was gone again. Rose totally understands how she's feeling. That's why she adopted multiple dogs from the shelter. Um, yeah, they don't do that. I think Rose may have committed a crime. There's a reason for the saying, never mix business with pleasure. Working alongside friends can be fun, but what will happen if someone gets a promotion the other one wanted? What if one friend falls behind and the other has to pick up the slack and becomes resentful? Will the friend resort to horrible name-calling and accusations towards your character? The pressure of work and free time being blurred can cause stress, leading to issues in the friendship. If you do end up working with a friend, be sure to set boundaries, have clear communication, and step back if needed. But no matter how much a situation leaves your insecurities triggered, character attacks and disloyalty are never the way to go when you're trying to maintain or mend a friendship. It's also important to remember, it's okay if you are replaceable at work. That's how it should be. Where you aren't replaceable is with your family, friends, and at home. So keep that balance healthy. And if you find a dog, take it to get checked for a microchip, post on social media, especially neighborhood-specific pages, and take it to the shelter. You're better off getting the dog into a safe space to be processed than to keep a strange dog in your house. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we get real personal with Rose in Love, Rose? Hi, Alicia. It's Coco. Hi, Coco. Did you say Cialis? Cialis is a boner pill. (laughs) Well... You can't tell me it doesn't look like Cialis, is what I'm saying. <laughs> National Sucking Chili Dog Day. <laughs> I believe that's called July 4th. In the USA. <laughs> I'm sorry, I burst. That's well, okay. I, I burst out laughing. Yeah, Ellen you did. burst out. Burst out. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I've heard yours. I bet you, I bet you ripped quite the beefer. <laughs> <laughs> I lit that motherfucker up. <laughs> okay, I wrote it out phonetically. I wrote it out phonetically. Come here. Don't lick the desk. Come here. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.